Amen. All right, if you have a copy of the handout tonight, we're going to make reference to that as we begin. And if you also want to turn to the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter number three, Genesis chapter number three, and we're going to be looking primarily at uh, one verse out of Genesis chapter number three, but we want to get the, uh, the context of what we're looking at. Now, last week we began dealing with this subject or this topic of what's known as covenant theology. Now, my intention tonight and my intention throughout this series is not to so focus on the term that we miss the great truths of why this is so important. You'll notice there in your introduction, it says, it is unknown who originated the term covenant theology. However, an honest study of the scriptures leads any honest seeker to conclude that God deals with man through the covenants. It is impossible to overstate how vital the teaching of biblical covenants is for a correct understanding of God and the sinner. In order to begin a proper study of the subject, we must answer, that's an error there, obvious, answer a series of questions. Tonight we're going to look at four questions to consider. We're going to consider why these questions matter, what the answers to them are, and this is going to kind of set us in the right direction as we begin to look at further uh, what these uh, questions are and what covenant theology really is all about. On the front of your bulletin, you see that we have from our Confession of Faith, chapter 7, paragraph 1. We read this uh, last week, I believe, of the three that we read. This is the first one. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience to him as their creator, yet they could have never attained the reward of life but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. So we know as a result of this covenant, there, is, there was a condescension. There was a coming down. In other words, God came down to man. Man did not go up to God. So as we think about condescension, when we think about the distance that the confession talks about, it talks about that that distance is so great that even though it ought to be reasonable for us to obey him without him coming down to us, we would never have the reward of eternal life. In other words, Perfect obedience to merit that distance being closed would be impossible. That is part of what these covenants are about. Now, as we think about the covenants, we need to look tonight at a very high view of this. And some of these questions we kind of hit on last week. So some of this will be a bit of a review. But as we look at these questions, you see there are four questions and there's a space for you to write the answer in there and then a couple of other thoughts. But first question, and we kind of dealt with this last week, I got a little bit ahead of myself, but we asked the question, is there more than one gospel? And of course, the answer to that is no. But why is that answer no is what we want to look at tonight. Now, in Genesis chapter number three, uh, we have the account of the fall of man. And this is, in fact, where the first of the covenants is going to be uh, mentioned. Redemption is going to be uh, mentioned as a, a means of rescue 
for the sinner. Now, what I want to do tonight is I do want to take the time and I want to read chapter 3 down to verse 15 so that we understand what's happening here. Remember, the covenants of God were not an afterthought. They were not something that God thought up after the fall. These are things that were in place before, but man uh, in his nature uh, would fall and would render this obedience impossible. And that's what we're going to start talking about over the next couple of weeks. We're going to be talking about the covenant of works. You're going to hear the term the covenant of grace. Uh, they are, there's a purpose for all of these. Look at verse number one of chapter three. He says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. Let's just stop for a minute and ask ourselves the question. All that was required was simple obedience. Okay? Do not eat. All right? Simple, the most uh, basic of obedience. Do not touch, do not eat, do not. That's simple obedience, even in our life, okay? Hers, very simple here. Uh, do, do not uh, do these things. And the serpent said of the woman, you shall not surely die. Now, there is the contrast with God's commandments. God commands do not. The serpent says you're not going to die, all right? And therein is the fall happening right before our eyes. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. Now, verse 15 is what I really want you to pay attention to. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, many people overlook this and they don't consider this, but this biblically is the first announcement of the gospel in Genesis 3.15. There is an acknowledgement that there is something that is taking place. There is now something needed. A redemption is now, is now needed. 
I mentioned to you last week, there are some that are teaching that there are no fewer than four Gospels. In other words, that every different time the Gospel was different. And most would say that the Gospel did not exist in the Old Testament anywhere. Because what they wrongly assume is that because Jesus Christ had not yet come in incarnate, had not yet taken on the robe of human flesh, that the gospel did not exist. But I would tell you that the purpose of the gospel is the redemption of the sinner. And if the gospel only came into an existence after Jesus Christ took on the robe of human flesh and went to the cross and was buried and rose again, then how were people prior to the cross saved? Now, we understand here that there is, as we looked last week, there is different administrations of things, of these covenants, and how they were conducted. But what we see here is that beginning in Genesis 3.15, the only gospel was based on the promised coming of Christ and what he has done. What God was saying here is the seed and her seed, the spiritual offspring, her seed, the spiritual, thy seed, the children of the devil. There's the difference there. It'll bruise your head, devil, and it'll bruise his heel. But ultimately, what we have happening here is the gospel was based only on the promised Messiah or the promised Redeemer. This is a prophecy of a Redeemer that is coming. A Redeemer who is coming to deal with what? With the sin of man. Here is the fall of man. That's why we've, we've kind of entitled this the covenant of redemption. The, the Bible is about redemption. It's about Jesus Christ and his redemption. Now, when we think about something of a promise to come, that's what adds some confusion to us. We begin to ask ourselves the question, how much did these people know? At this moment, how much did Adam know about Christ? How much did Eve know about Christ? It's all been based upon the promise of, coming, of Jesus coming and what he would do. Now, we see in the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians, if you want to turn there, 2 Corinthians 4, uh, verses 3 through 7, and then we'll move on over to 2 Corinthians 5. But 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 through 7, uh, give us uh, the, the picture here. And I want you to notice very carefully the wording that the Apostle Paul uses. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, that, that reference to light is even, it's a reference to the same light in creation. The creator God, Elohim, which hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. He talks about this treasure 
This, is, this treasure is the gospel. This, this treasure is the message of, of Christ. It's the message of God. He deals with a God hath shined in our hearts, the same as which God had commanded the light to shine out of darkness in creation. It is the same light which commands the gospel to shine in the heart of the sinner. The illumination of the heart, the illumination of darkness into his glorious light. This is this, this gospel that is light. It, 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 it shines light in the dark. Now again, Jesus, during the time when the gospel first is given in Genesis 3.15, of course, Jesus had not yet come, but it was the promise of what was going to happen. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteous of God in him. For he hath made him, him is Christ, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteous of God in him. So God, the Father, charged his son, the sinless one, with the sin of his people. Jesus was counted a sinner that we might go free. It is the transaction of the gospel, if you will. It is what took place. Christ took our place by taking our sin, and it's by grace through faith, that's key, we receive his righteousness. The key is this grace by faith or grace through faith. Because everybody in the Old Testament, Jesus Christ had not yet come, but grace through faith has always been the mark of the gospel. So is there more than one gospel? Of course, no, the answer is. Number two, has God made more than one way of salvation? Now, think about what we just saw in Genesis 3.15. If everything from Genesis 3.15 forward was this, that the only gospel or the only good news that man would ever know is about the promise of the coming Messiah. He would redeem sinners by doing what? He would redeem them from sin. He would bruise the serpent's head or crush the serpent's head. This is the only good news the world has ever known. The only good news that has ever been known from Adam until the very end of time is this, is what God through Christ has done. What he would do. That's the only good news that there's ever been. Now again, when we get into the covenants and we start dealing with the covenant of works and the covenant of grace and the, the discussion will come in, what was the covenant of works? Was man ever saved by works? Was man ever had the ability to work his way to salvation? And that leads us into question number two. Has God made more than one way of salvation? And the answer is no. If you'll drop down to verse number 21 of that same chapter of Genesis 3, the Bible tells us about Adam and his wife making coats of skins. It says this, Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil, and now, lest he put forth his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. This is the first instance recorded in Scripture of a sacrifice. Coats of skins required the death 
of an animal. Okay, so that means there's a sacrifice. What did God do? It says God made coats of skins. A lot of times the story gets kind of messed up. And we get the idea that Adam and Eve began sewing skins. The Bible doesn't say that they made these coats of skins. It says that his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. God did it. God clothed them. Now, some may say that's a technicality, but understand something. God provided the, we don't see anywhere that Adam even killed the sacrifice. We don't see Adam went into the, into the, uh, the garden and found an animal and killed it and skinned it. No, the Bible says that the Lord God did it. He made the coats of skins and he clothed them. So God provided a sacrifice. And by the way, that was not a simple thing to just cover their nakedness. If all we understand out of verse 21 is that they were ashamed, so God covered them in animal skin, or that it was some sort of a modesty situation here, that's not what the intent of that was. Now, we know modesty is a principle. We just read that in 1 Timothy chapter number 2. However, this was not about just the covering of the nakedness. This is a picture of Jesus Christ. This is a picture of Christ himself being the sacrifice. And through his sacrifice, God would give the sacrifice. Before the foundation of the world, the covenant was between God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit that Jesus would be that sacrificial lamb. And that we are clothed in his righteousness. So from Genesis 3, 21 forward, God saves the sinner not according to their works, but according to the unmerited free grace of God. We've got to keep our, in our mind's eye that God's grace, as far as we're concerned, is always free. Free grace just simply means grace that you and I did not pay for, nor did we have the ability to pay for. That's what free grace is. Now, one of the classic passages that tell us about our worthiness is in Romans 3, verses 10 through 12. And a misinterpretation of this scripture, uh, people tend to say, well, this is just what we used to be. But the reality is, is this is who all mankind is apart from God. Romans 3, verses 10 through 12. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. So man's depravity is who he is. That means everything man does, he's a sinner. Even the best good that we do is still tainted with sin apart from God. So that's where the idea is, is that if I just present my very best, then I'm doing good. The problem is, as a totally depraved sinner, nothing that you do is good. He says there's not one that understands. There's not one that seeks after God. That very clearly shows us that there's not a one of us who even has the comprehension enough to know to do enough good or to be righteous enough because we wouldn't even seek after God. 
Now remember, it was God that went seeking for Adam in the garden. It wasn't Adam that went looking for God. And that's important to understand. So we know that God has, does not have more than one gospel. He has not made more than one way of salvation. So what does that mean? That means this, is there has never been, and we'll deal with this in the coming weeks, there has never been a redemption or a salvation throughout all of history that was based on works. Now, we say that, and all of us should understand that, but there are people who are teaching a form of works-based redemption. God saves people not according to their works, but rather according to unmerited favor or free grace. Salvation, I think I mentioned this last week, is not man's search for God. Man does not get up one day and say, I want to seek after God. It is God that seeks after him, and God finds the sinner. He finds his own. He finds his elect. Now, there are some who teach that the people in the Old Testament, and there's even an idea here, and again, I don't want to get too far out of the box, but there are those who teach about a millennial kingdom to come. They're teaching in a way that in that day or in the Old Testament or in the millennial kingdom is that we will be saved, people will be saved rather by works. In other words, there'll be some sort of law keeping or some sort of commandment keeping. That teaching is very prevalent. It is out there to where people say, yeah, the Old Testament, they were saved by works. And what's going to happen again in the millennial kingdom? The millennial kingdom is going to be a time of being saved by works again or being saved by the law. In other words, it's going to look like the Old Testament according to them. But what we're saying to you tonight and by Scripture is that there has never been a time in the Old Testament or will there ever be a time when works saves or redeems man. Now, what we need to understand that there's two, two thoughts we need to have about this tonight. Number one, if people are saved by works at any point in time, if that's the requirement, then nobody would be saved. Okay? If it was required of anyone to be saved by works if at any time, nobody would be saved. God is absolutely, perfectly holy. And in order for works to save, their works would have to be absolutely, perfectly holy like God. Now, taking Romans 3 into account, we already saw we can't be perfectly holy because we're not God. So if works could ever be part of salvation, then no one would ever be saved. Number two, if people can be saved by works, or we might even use this term, or by cooperating with God. And this is where we're going to get into the, into the weeds about this. Because there are some that say, okay, look, no, I'm not saved by my works alone, but I'm saved by cooperating with God. If we could be saved by cooperation in any way, shape, or form, there would have been no need for Christ to come. There would have been no need for a deliverer. There would have been no need for Genesis 3.15. Why does Genesis 3.15 even exist if we could have just cooperated with God? then why did Jesus have to come and die? Jesus came to rescue a fallen, depraved humanity. And man could not do it. Number three, another interesting one, another interesting question. Does God, and pardon the expression here, it's a, it's a kind of a crude expression as far as it's not very, uh, not very theological. Does God have a backup 
a backup purpose or a plan in case his plan or covenant fails. In other words, does God have a plan B? The answer is no. But if you listen to some talk about it, you hear some say that God originally, the Old Testament, failed and that that's the purpose for the New Testament. And of course, that's not true. Uh, There are some today even who believe that Christ came as the Messiah and his intent was to drive out the Romans out of Jerusalem. We see that in the New Testament and to set up an earthly kingdom. And you know from your, old, from your New Testament reading, you know that Jesus did not set up his earthly kingdom and still to this day it has not yet been set up. There are some that teach because Jesus is not ruling today that the Jews, because they rejected God's earthly kingdom set up, have now, they've rejected that and God had to go to plan B. And the plan B is, we've been studying this on Sunday morning, the church now replaces Israel. And this is why I've said the past few Sundays, we're not teaching replacement theology, which tells us that we are now Israel and Israel is gone forever. If that's the case, then that's a plan B. If the church took Israel's place, then that means God's original plan failed and we become plan B. And of course, according to that kind of teaching, then we would know that the church even, the very church in which, not this just local church, but the invisible body of all believers, if we believe that we're plan B, then the church was just an afterthought. In other words, this was not God's original plan, but since the Jews didn't set it up and rejected Christ, this is plan B. Is everybody following me? This, the church is not, was not God's original plan. The church is now an afterthought because the Jews didn't live up to their part. Okay, I'm, trying to, I'm, I'm simplifying some, some very uh, large thoughts here, okay? trying to bring this down to, to even where I can understand this. So did God's original plan fail? Of course not. God has always only had one plan. And as we've been looking at on Sunday mornings, even with our Romans uh, study, God has always had a plan and it has included the Jews and it has included the Gentiles. He has never been swerved. He's never swerved from his plan. He's never been uh, derailed. It is simply that this is what God's plan has always been. So number three, does God have a backup purpose or plan in case his plan or covenant fails? The answer is no. God has only one plan decreed before the foundation of the world. He will never move away from that which he has ordained. All right, so this is, this is not a matter of a plan B. I've given you a, a quote there. I think it's on your handout. Maybe, it, maybe I didn't give you the quote. It's not on your handout. I came across this quote from Thomas Watson. He says, God's decree is the very pillar and basis on which the saint's perseverance depends. That decree ties the knot of adoption so fast or so tight that neither sin, death, nor hell can break it asunder. In other words, what God decreed is so secure that man's sin, death, hell can break it, which leads us to the covenant. If God's covenant can be broken by sin, then it ceases to be a covenant. 
Okay, and that's important to understand. Because some of the teaching out there is suggesting that, is that a covenant, God's covenant was broken or God broke his covenant, which is impossible. God does not break covenants. That would make God a liar. So question four, is there more than one people of God from Adam to the second coming of Christ? Now this can sound like a little bit of a trick question. Is there more than one people of God? Now I'm not asking, are there Jews and Gentiles? We know there are. But has there been an intent for there to be more than one body of Christ? And ultimately, the answer to that question is no. There has there's never been more than one people of God. They have all been the people of God. And it is true that the covenants of God have been different in their administration or how they were, how they were given and how they were... Uh, recognized the principle of grace through faith has always been. In other words, just because God's covenants look different doesn't mean that they're different as far as the redemption of people. They were administered different. They were carried out in a different manner. That's why we have the different covenants. We have, we have the, the Adamic covenant and we have the covenants with Noah and the, with Abraham. It's, those are not different gospels because of different people. They're one people of God leading to redemption. The principle of grace through faith has always been. So the answer is no, there, has, there is not more than one people, but it is true the covenants of God have been different in their administration, but the principle of grace through faith has always been. So the covenants tell us this, that every soul that's been saved from Adam until the very last converted sinner today, whoever that person was today that was converted today, and all the way up to the very last person who will be converted when Christ comes for the second time, they will be part of one people of God. They are not going to be separate places in glory for different people of God. There's not going to be the Jewish side of heaven and the Baptist side of heaven and the Christian side of heaven and whatever the case may be. There is one people of God. There is one body of Christ. Local Bible-believing churches are pictures or illustrations of a larger body, and they do serve a very important value. But we need to understand that it has always been God redeeming his own. How one is brought into acceptance with God, into favor with God, it's always been by faith alone. Grace through faith. Again, if one was saved by works or by keeping the law, then all we can say this, if that's ever been true, if for a millisecond, if for a millisecond that people were saved by keeping the law, then nobody would be saved, including you and I. So if anybody was ever required to be saved by keeping the law or by works, nobody would ever be saved because nobody could do it. So the implications of that are, 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 are amazing. So who kept the law? Christ is the only one that's kept the law. Christ lived a flawless life. He lived a sinless life. He died the required death upon a cross 
the payment that a holy God required, Christ, the eternal Son of God. Second in the Godhead, right? He's the only one. So the very first example, if Abraham, and there are some who believe Abraham was saved by works. If Abraham was saved by works, and that was what, if that's what the belief is, then nobody's saved. Abraham was not saved by his works. He was saved the very same way in which every single saint has been saved, and it is grace through faith. The Bible does tell us about Abraham that he believed God. They expressly, the scriptures expressly tell us that his belief was accounted to him as righteousness. But that's all the way back in Genesis 15. Let's look at that. Genesis 15 and look at uh, verse number one in Genesis 15. Now we've, we've fast forwarded from Genesis 3 all the way to Genesis 15. Of course, a lot of history has passed between those two. But Genesis 15, verse number 1, the Bible tells us this. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars. I love this. If thou be able to number them, and he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. Now, that's all Abraham's told, okay? Now, I want you to notice this. That's all Abraham is told. Your seed will be as the stars. The numbers of, the, of, of those that will be a result of your seed that will come from, uh, uh, come from you, from me. And he believed in the Lord. And he counted it to him for righteousness. And he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? And he said unto him, take me a heifer of three years old and a she-goat of three years old and a ram of three years old and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he took unto him all these and divided them in the midst and laid each piece one against another, but the birds divided he not. And when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And lo, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in the land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge. And afterward shall they come out with great substance." And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. 
In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land, from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. Now, we could go through a long exposition of all of the implications of the sacrifices. The cutting of the sacrifices, the non-cutting of some, the laying out of each piece, Abram driving the fowls away. But when we get to the picture here, we get to the picture of God saying, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Literally, that phrase, to make a covenant, literally means to cut a covenant. It's an illusion. It's a metaphor. It's a picture of a sacrifice. What we see happening here is a picture of the covenant that God was making with Abraham, and this was regarding the seed that would come, the redeemed, the people that would be of Abraham. When we see these truths here, we see these these things play out in the Old Testament, we understand that Abraham and every one of the Old Testament saints were accepted and declared righteous before God by faith. Everything that Abraham was doing here was faith. When he believed God, it was by faith. And the greatest illustration of the Old Testament saints being saved by grace through faith is Hebrews 11. And we're not going to read all those because that, that is a long chapter, but Hebrews 11 gives us a, a, a ledger, if you will, of people who live by faith. It starts all the way in verse 5. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Verse 5, by faith, Enoch was translated, he should not see death. Verse 7, by faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteous, which is by faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place, Verse 9, by faith he sojourned in the land of promise. Verse 11, through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Verse 17, by faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. Verse 20, by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. Verse 21, by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshiped. Verse 22, by faith, Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. Verse 23, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child and they were not afraid of the king's commandments. Verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Esteeming, look at this, verse 26, esteeming the reproach of Christ 
Now, let me ask you a question. How in the world did Moses esteem the reproach of Christ who had not yet come? Because he saw a promise. The word esteeming there means to to consider them and to consider it more important or to consider being reproached for Christ greater than all the money and treasures in Egypt. That's faith. Verse 27, by faith, Moses, he forsook Egypt. 28, through faith, he kept the Passover. By faith, verse 29, they passed through the Red Sea. Verse 30, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. This one always gets me. And the wording, verse 31, by faith, the harlot. How would you like that phrase in front of your name, the harlot Rahab? But yet she's in the redeemed by faith. Rahab perished not with them that believe not. There it is. What does that tell us about Rahab? Where is Rahab today? She's in glory. And then we go all the way down to verse 39. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. In other words, all of these who died in faith received a witness or a testimony from God. In other words, they, all they had was the substance of God's promise, but they did not have the presence of Christ. Christ is the promise. But what does it say about them? They all obtained a good report through faith. They all received acceptance with God, yet they did not have Christ. Now, that doesn't mean Christ was not the object. It does not mean that there was not faith. But look what he says, verse 40. God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should, be, should not be made perfect. There was no final perfection for the Old Testament saint. They were promises. But that by no means does not indicate that they did not have a Christ or the gospel in view. They were promises. Now we understand that as we study through this, the fact that the saints of the Old Testament were saved the same way in which the New Testament saints were, we see that even as as we bring this to a close tonight, you'll see the application there. That the covenants of God are revealed through the gospel. First, to Adam in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman was the promise, that's Christ. And later, by progressive steps until the full revelation of it became complete in the New Testament. The Old Testament only makes sense to us when we read about it in the New. Hebrews 11, without the Old Testament, would make no sense to us. We would say, who who is Moses? Who is Rahab? Who are all these individuals? Yet all of these individuals were brought into faith or brought to faith in Christ through the gospel. That's what makes the covenant so very important. Now, when we start talking about this over the weeks to come, we find out that the the gospel 
as we understand it, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is still true. And we're not denying that. We're not denying that the gospel message for today is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the question is, what did the Old Testament saint have in view? You say they, could, they didn't have all that in view. No, they didn't have the full picture. They had faith in a promise. We accept the gospel today by a promise. We are, we are saved through faith. We are saved and we are in Christ today by a promise that Jesus Christ is coming again. He's coming for us again. But that's still a promise that's there for us. It has not yet happened. We're looking for his second coming. Faith tells us why are we looking for it? We're looking for a promise of something to be fulfilled that has not yet been fulfilled. But we wouldn't say we don't have the gospel. We have the gospel, but there's still a promise out there. There's still something that we're waiting for. That's all the Old Testament saint was doing. They knew there was a promise of a redeemer. And that is, in fact, the gospel. Next week, we'll get a little bit further into this. But we're going to go back a little bit because we're going to start talking about specifically, all right, we talk about the word covenant. We've heard the word covenant. What exactly is it? What does a covenant mean? What does that covenant uh, indicate? Or what does that covenant include? And we'll begin uh, with that process uh, next week as we look through it, okay? As we conclude tonight, if you're still there in Hebrews, if you're not, you can just listen. Let me just give you a couple of verses as we conclude, and then we'll pray and be dismissed. Hebrews 13, verses 13 through 16. The Bible tells us this. Let us go forth, therefore, unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. For here have we no continuing city, but we seek one to come. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But to do good and to communicate, forget not. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Let's stand and we'll go to the Lord in prayer and we'll be on our way.